At this most sacred time of the year, what is the nature of dialogue within the church? And why are some trying to shut down discussion and debate altogether? Theologian and columnist George Weigel is here with analysis. We'll also take you to the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library for a very special turnabout tale and a classic Lenten reflection from our late dear friend, Father Richard John Newhouse. This Holy Week edition of The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Let's get right to it. It's already April, and with only six months to go until the official start of the Synod on Synodality, Catholics expressing concern over the direction of the Synod are being labeled in some circles as disrespectful or even disobedient of Pope Francis. Why do dialogue and debate seem to frighten some? And why do some Catholic journalists seem interested in silencing colleagues with whom they disagree? Here with analysis is theologian, columnist, and senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, George Weigel. George, thanks for being here. Over the past few months, I've seen this pattern developing. Uh, and I want to begin with a piece you recently wrote. It was titled, A Somber Anniversary. It appeared in the Denver Catholic, First Things, and other outlets, and it concerned the 10th anniversary of Pope Francis's pontificate. You write, quote, the prevailing mood in today's Vatican is one of trepidation because papal autocracy has created a miasma of fear. Parisia is not the Roman order of the day, except in private. Even then, it is rare because trust among Vatican officials has broken down. Serious, fraternal, charitable debate over the current condition of the church and of the synodal process is largely non-existent. Silos are everywhere. George, why has trust, let me start here, why has trust among Vatican officials broken down, according to your reportage and those you've been talking to? Uh, Raymond, because uh, it is understood that to criticize or even raise questions about the direction of this synodal process is to put one's career at risk. Now, you might want to say that people should be willing to do that, and some have, and they have paid the price for that. Uh, but it's a very sad situation, and uh, I have to say it it put me in mind of something that I took as my watchword in, in writing the biography of John Paul II. It was something said by a great Spanish Dominican theologian of the 16th century, Melchior Cano, who said this, mm. Peter has no need of our flattery. Those who blindly and indiscriminately defend every decision of the Supreme Pontiff are the very ones who do most to undermine the authority of the Holy See. They destroy instead of strengthening its foundations. That's, mm. that's a great sadness when that happens in the church. It is a complete violation of the Pope's own call for paresia, frank talking. 
and, and I also have to remember that at our first private audience in the December of, of 2013, I said to the Holy Father, the only thing I can possibly do for you is to tell you what no one else will tell you. If that's a problem for you, you'll let me know and I'll be quiet. Uh, he said, no, no, I want you to tell me what you think. That's what I've tried to do over the 10 years of this pontificate. And I think any fair reading of the 500 columns I've done in that period uh, or of the articles I've written would bear that out. Yeah. George, there seems to be an evolving talking point, and it's, it, it appears to be a talking point, an organized effort from some progressive elements in the church to cancel or shut down anyone who asks questions about the direction of things. Rome correspondent for the Tablet UK, Christopher Lamb, tweeted this out about your piece on Pope Francis. He said, George Weigel's hit piece on Pope Francis carried in Sydney and Boston's official diocesan publications is puzzling to many people. Would any church paper have run a condemnatory article on John Paul II or Benedict XVI when they marked a significant anniversary? What do you make of that characterization that you wrote, quote, a hit piece, and the call that it be deplatformed? Well, that's just ridiculous. Uh, anyone who wants to read what I uh, wrote on the 10th anniversary of the Holy Father's election can find that column called A Somber Anniversary at uh, the Ethics and Public Policy Center website or at georgeweigel.com. Uh, so first of all, the notion that this was slanderous or malicious is just ridiculous. Secondly, I don't mean to disappoint uh, Chris Lamb, but that piece appeared in dozens of papers around the world, not just in Boston, uh, uh, Denver, and Sydney. And, and Sydney, Australia. And the third point is that, you know, Chris, where have you been? I, I'm old enough to remember that Andy Greeley, may he rest in peace, Dick McBrien, may he rest in peace, made entire careers out of criticizing mm. Paul VI and John Paul II in the diocesan press. So the notion that there's Tom Reese, don't forget Father Reese. <laughs> I think he only appears in the Jesuit press, but uh, yes, in, well, <laughs> in any event, um, no. This is just uh, this is just very sad that these, frankly, totalitarian or autocratic tactics are being uh, subscribed to, are being in fact deployed by people who claim to be the party of dialogue, mm. the party of accompaniment, the party of an open mm -hmm. church with a big tent, et cetera, et cetera. It's all very, yeah, if, very look, sad. If it, had, if it had just been a tweet or it was one mention, you know, you let those things go by. But when you see an organized campaign, Lamb then went on to write an article in the tablet, and it was titled, Why Questions Must Be Asked when the church's own publications run articles attacking the pope. And in it, he writes, but some senior officials in the church, including in Rome, were alarmed to see that one of these pieces, George Weigel's, was reproduced in the official publications of several English-speaking dioceses. Now, your piece was later produced in those dioceses, as you mentioned. How do you view this drumbeat to get your column removed? Uh, as it was from at least the, the Boston diocesan paper. Uh, I, I don't think this is going to uh, work. Uh, 
uh, Raymond. Uh, bishops know that I tell the truth as I see it. Uh, mine is not one of the most widely syndicated columns in the Catholic press for no reason. Uh, I have a 30-year track record here. And this is really, frankly, quite pathetic uh, for Chris Lamb or anybody else uh, to be trying to bully bishops into deprogramming yeah. or deplatforming me or anyone else. Yeah. George, uh, another papal biographer, Austin Ivory, uh, he also, and this is part of why it came onto my radar, he also wrote a piece um, uh, quoting, you know, he claims that, that your piece, quote, crosses the line of communion. Uh, he says this is not about balancing different opinions or insisting that all coverage of the pontificate be positive. Dr. Weigel is entitled, obviously, to be an incessant, querulous, ideological critic of Francis. There is free speech in the church, and far more so now, yes, even in Rome than 20 years ago, but freedom is not merely license. Is there still freedom to speak honestly and openly when it comes to church affairs, George? Or should Catholic media be essentially cheerleading repeaters of whatever is said by the Holy See Press Office? I, I think everyone owes a duty of respect to the Holy Father. Uh, I think I have honored that duty in everything I have written about him. There is nothing in the column that Dr. Ivory objects to that could possibly be characterized by those three hyperventilating adjectives he used. Uh, I don't quite understand why these people are so scared of the truth. What I wrote is what everyone in Rome who is paying attention knows to be the case. I've been told that by senior officials of the Roman Curia and others. I've received thanks for that column from numerous bishops and others. So why are these guys in such a fret about this? Uh, it's really yeah. unbecoming and it's quite disedifying, frankly. Well, George, I think a piece of it is, if, if I can get, engage in a tiny little bit of commentary here, I think part of it is they know your sources are, are sound. Uh, they know your reputation in the church, having been John Paul's biographer and everything that followed. And when you say these things in these publications, it means something. People are reading them. I guess it's a backward form of flattery. It's how I take, you know, some of these attacks when cardinals are urging the deplatforming of my program or the network. Um, and look, high-ranking officials have tried to literally take me off the air. Uh, but, you know, as you said, when you're committed to the truth, you have an obligation to simply report that for the good of the audience and for your own credibility. Do you see this um, as a piece, if you will, a way to clear away any questions surrounding this upcoming synod uh, just before it, it opens? And, you know, given the conversation beforehand, we sort of know where it's headed. Well, I'm not sure we do know where it's headed, Raymond, because that synod is going to be uh, attended by many, many people who think that what's going on in the church in Germany is nothing short of a disaster, by many people mm -hmm. who understand that uh, fudging the doctrinal and moral boundaries of the Catholic Church is not attractive, by many people who understand that the Catholic Light Project leads inevitably to Catholic Zero, and they are going to have their say at the Synod in October. So this is by no means going to be a walkover for those of the cast of mind of Austin Ivory and Christopher Lamb 
And I think perhaps they know that and are trying to, you know, doing some ranging fire or warning shots here. It's not going to affect the people who uh, plan to continue to be truth tellers as this process, which could lead to something quite good for the church, uh, unfolds. Yeah. Well, we will keep our eyes on that. I know you'll be reporting, as will I. But, you know, George, as I look at the totality of this and the, you know, the, the again, trying to kill the messenger, this seems a bit like urging the closure of the firehouse because they wet the furniture while putting out the fire. No, the fire brigade is not the guilty party here. Who set the fire? That's what needs to be asked, and that's who needs to be pursued. George, we will leave it there. You can find George's commentary at georgeweigel.com. And to sanctify the world, the vital legacy of Vatican II by George Weigel is available at bookstores everywhere and online. Thank you, George. Thank you, Raymond. As most of you know, I've been out touring the country talking about my new book, The Unexpected Light of Thomas Alva Edison. Recently, I visited the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California. I sat down with the chief marketing officer at the library, Melissa Giller, to discuss the book, the first of my Turnabout Tales series. Here's a bit of that conversation. I think your first foray into books for young adults was the Will Wilder series. Yes. And then you moved to books for children and families um, around the holidays with religious messages. And now we hear, are here for historical figures. So what made you think to do a children or family book specifically on historical figures? I love that you call it a family book because people, you know, I think crudely refer to these books as picture books. I never call them picture books. I call them family reads. Mm -hmm. And what I discovered is, look, I. I I stumbled upon this story. This was just a kind of, someone had given me one of those big, great Edison biographies, and I'll be honest, like you, it sat on my shelf. It was a collector of dust. But uh, one, time, one day I decided to pick it up and take it on vacation with me, and I read sometimes from the back of the book to the front. So I flipped to the last chapter, and there was an interview with Elder Edison, when he's an old man. And in the interview, he says... My mother was the making of me. She allowed me to follow my bent and but for her faith and devotion to me. At a certain time in my life, I should never have become an inventor. And I thought, wait a minute, who is this mother? Why is he talking about her in these terms? And that biography didn't really explore that part of the story. So that began for me a four-month journey mm. that took me to the Edison Labs in West Orange, uh, Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, I, I, I read I don't know how many biographies, and I discovered and unearthed this little bit of Edison's story that I think is the heart of his story, which is a mother's devotion mm -hmm who saw possibility in her son, where the world saw nothing at all. Even his own father called him a dunce. Mm. So it was a great story I thought kids and families needed access to. So every, and then as I read these other great American lives, and not even American lives, young lives of great people, you quickly realize they all have what I like to term a turnabout tale. A moment when a crisis is faced, a challenge is faced, a decision is made, and history turns. And so I'm devoting myself to writing a series of these family reads that focus and frame the story as a turnabout tale. So that's kind of, you know, the big picture, and now we can burrow into it. No, this is great. Edison so, um, and, and my 
children yeah. are 20 and 23. And I still, oh, found, this perfect book, and I still found this book fascinating. But yeah. it leads to my next question yeah. in that, yes, it's a family read, but yeah. do you have a target age range for these books? Well, I, I don't, you, I write for two audiences, and this really applies to all of my books for young people, families. I try to write for the child today and the child tomorrow when they're reading to their own children because that's the kind of books that excited me. I mean, Jungle Book and Treasure Island and Peter Pan and all those stories that my mother read to me, when I read them to my own children, they moved, they shift on you. Good literature has a way of kind of shifting on you. Um, and it's not moving, you are. Uh, we, we as adults perceive things in a different way. So there are themes and characters and moments that you miss as a child that when you hit them as an adult, the lights suddenly go on. So I write, this book too is written on two levels. There is a story in the foreground for the child. And look, Edison, he was a curious kid. So I told the illustrator, I told my, my publisher, I really want to lean into the experiments and the curious things he did to find out how the world worked. You know, he wanted to find out how bees made honey. So he cracked open a honeycomb. He just busted them open. Well, you imagine the bees went everywhere. I mean, this is not, you know, a calm way to approach, you know, study of bees. Uh, he wanted to learn how fire worked. So he set a little blaze in the corner of his dad's barn, As one burning does. the whole <laughs> farm down. Um, you know, so, I mean, it wasn't a kind of, but if you, if you visit these moments for kids, they're fascinated mm -hmm. by it. Um, that kind of tactile experience. And in the background is really the story of a mother and her son that I think, I, I, judging from the letters and the notes and the response mm -hmm. I've gotten on this book tour, um, it, it's touching people. They are, um, I think they're moved by it. And it comes at a time when our history is being challenged, as you know, I mean, you all are the keeper of Reagan's legacy here in many ways. That legacy, all historic legacies, I think are being eroded a little bit each day. It's our obligation to push back on that and find new ways to introduce people, mm -hmm. I think, to these great lives. Because look, and they're not saints. Nobody, I, when I walked in, I, I noticed Ronald Reagan had a cowboy hat on, he did not have a halo, and that's fine. Typical for, for Edison. He's not a saint. He did, he did, you know, pretty horrible things later in life with some of his competitors. He was a tough businessman. That's part of the deal. The story I'm focusing on, though, is a child who was discarded and pushed aside like so many. And our educational system is so rigid, it doesn't always allow people who think outside the box. And Edison thought, way outside the box. He was creating new boxes, and it threatened a lot of people. Yeah, you know, President Reagan often said that an education isn't just in the classroom, it's in the home. And what his mother did for him just epitomizes that completely. Saved his life. So his life. I think my last question on the family read portion yeah. is with your Christmas or holiday books, yeah. um, with these books, are you finding that you're solving an untapped area of journalism? Do you think there are family reads out there that, that are beloved? Well, I, you know, I think there are a few moments, there are a few things that families can gather around together at the same time and enjoy together. So I'm real, my real conceit in all of this, whether it's the Christmas books or these books or the Will Wilder books, I really want a meeting of the generations. That's what I'm trying to do, to get mothers and fathers and grandparents and, grand, uh, uh, and uncles and aunts to sit with that child 
and share their own experience. What happens after they close the book is just as important as whatever I put between the pages. Because I think that interaction, you know, when, when I was a child, we had the Carol Burnett show, we had uh, the sitcoms, we had different things that we all gathered together. I remember spending time with my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandmother who lived with us. That, that knowledge, the wisdom I got from that experience are things I treasure to this day. I mean, they shaped my life the way Edison's mother shaped his. And so this book is partly a reminder to adults that you have an obligation to recognize and try to see beyond even what the external appearance presents, the possibilities of that child, and to nurture those possibilities, and to defend and advocate for that child even when it means confronting a professor in the classroom who's saying, this kid is not good enough. Mm -hmm. Too dumb. Mm -hmm. Get out. Nancy Edison had the moxie to stand up and the devotion to her child to say, no, I know what he's capable of, and I'm going to at least allow him to try mm -hmm. to be who I think he is. So. Now, yes. <laughs> so... The story, the <laughs> words, are fabulous. But I also have to say the illustrations are yeah. stunning. Yeah. So can you talk about Christina? Is Christina Gehrman, it's very interesting. Um, you know, look, people always say, oh, it must be easy. You just crank, you're cranking these out, Raymond. Well, let me stop you. Slow <laughs> your roll. Um, it takes me four to six months to do research on a book like this. This is not something I write off the top of my head because you must know much more than you could possibly put into 19 flips. And as a, when you're dealing with family reads, picture books, you only get 19 turns of the page. That's all you have. That's a very limited amount of time to tell a story. So to me, they're like mini-movies. These are like storyboards for, for, for a movie. So as I'm writing it, I'm also writing a description of what I think I want to see in that spread. And you give the artist a kind of notion of what you'd like to see. Now, once it goes to her, in this case, Christina Gehrman, uh, like this first spread, uh, I love the idea that Edison was born in a windowless attic. All, you know, this dark place. So the first words are, as a baby, little Al Edison slept in a dark, windowless attic, but there was light within him. And I love the idea of him, and she came up with this idea of him reaching for the little candlelight in the corner of the room. You know, so again, she's telling you things that I now don't have to say. This was once a paragraph down here. I sliced a lot of that away because your picture begins to tell more than half of the line. So it's a, it's a dance, it's a, core, it's a um, real collaboration. Mm -hmm. And no matter who I'm working with, you send them your script, your manuscript, and then a description, and many times they will send back a sketch that improves what you originally saw and sometimes consolidates it, and I'll cut tons of copy. So it becomes an editing exercise at the end. Mm -hmm. um, but you're, you're really, like you said, I love so many people who told me, oh, I didn't know this about Edison. I didn't know he did this as a man. I didn't know he did, he did this as a child. I, I want to surprise you mm -hmm. and keep a story narrative. And to do that and have a story arc in 19 flips is well, a challenge. Well, and that was going to be But my, she did a beautiful job. And that was literally going to be my next question. So you've sort of answered this in bits and pieces throughout the other questions. But the process of researching this book, mm. the process of writing this book, because you're telling such an important story yeah. in 19 flips. So 
and the research is vast. So how do you go about that research and narrowing it down? Well, it, it, that's hard. I, I, st I stand back because of my training. My background was in the theater. So look, I was trained to, when you do your research, and, and I would do research as an actor. You, you delve deeply into this character, but there are only a certain amount of things that you can play, okay? So you, you're really looking for clues of what can you actually put, what behavior can you put on, what can you show that reveals much more than you can possibly say. And I think the same way as I approach this material. I'm looking for tells, character tells. So I'll give you an example. When I went to the Edison lab in West Orange, which is incredible. It's a vast place. If you go on my social media, go to Raymond Arroyo on Twitter or my, my Facebook account, I did all these little videos in the process of doing a special for Fox and my research and took you into the archives and into the, Vat the, the Vatican. Sorry, <laughs> forgive me. Slip of the tongue into the Edison labs. It was like the Vatican for me, I have to tell you. Uh, and in fact, I told the archivist when I went in, I'm like, this place is like holy to me. Because once you read a life and you spend so much time with that person, to walk in, and the Edison Labs, he died in 31, 1931. The family gave the entire laboratory that he built and spent 44 years in to the federal government. It is one of the most intact national parks in the system, and it's really worth visiting. To, uh, it blew my mind. It's untouched. You walk in and it's, it's like the turn of the century. And his office has all the clutter and the stuff it had on it in 1931. His, there, there, are, there are racks with his vests and his hats, his bowler hats in the corner. It's incredible. The, the cot he slept on in between experiments is in the corner. Really cool. But a long wind up to say. I went into the archive and I found and they showed me the sketch that Thomas Edison made of the phonograph, the very first one. It's a crude drawing with a stylus and a cylinder and a horn. But I said, my gosh, wh where did this come from? This idea of thinking visually and working this out. Well, it came from his childhood. When he was, when he was five years old, he would walk around town with little notebooks and sketch the signs he saw and the things that fascinated him. So he was always working in some ways with his eyes, with his hands, and working his way through problems. That is really the mark of not only Edison as a boy, but Edison as an inventor. So I'm looking for those little character tells. He was also, and I'll, I'll tie Christina Gehrman to this, my illustrator, I later found out, she is deaf. She's, she can't hear at all. Thomas Edison, at 12 years old, was deaf. He, he lost his hearing. Um, there are lots of news reels of him with his, with his ear, and people are literally yelling at him, and they're right here. And when he would record people for the phonograph, record musical acts, there's a big ear horn next to his chair mm. at the Edison Music Room, in, upstairs in the lab, and it's pressed right against the horn of the phonograph. That's the only way he could hear. Um, and later in life, he would actually get a board. This is cool. I know that you didn't ask this no, question. No, please. But it's such, I love this stuff. Um, he had a board, and the, the hearing was almost totally gone. And he put the board under the phonograph, and he would bite down on it like a cochlear implant. And the sound would reverberate through his skull, because that's the only way he could hear wow. fine vibrations wow. at a certain age. Brilliant guy. This is a century ago. So the, the, the vision of Thomas Edison, again, the light 
The book is The Unexpected Light of Thomas Alva Edison. Not only was it unexpected, it is iridescent. It continues to glow to this very moment. It's, we are beneficiaries of his creation all around us. Right. You keep talking that this is a series. It so is. Are you allowed to share with us who might be next? I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't going to share with you, but now I can. Ooh, okay. Yeah, I'm like Barack Obama. Yes, we can. <laughs> um, I'm trying to give, bring everybody in. We got Ronald Reagan and Edison, now I'm bringing Obama in. Um, the next book, this is, as I said, Turnabout Tales, and it's a moment of crisis in these young lives. The next book, and I kind of just tipped it off, Edison on the train as a boy met Abraham Lincoln. Mm. The next book in the series is the marvelous mischief of Tad Lincoln, who is Abraham Lincoln's youngest son. And he's an ignored part of history, People don't spend a lot of time talking about him or even thinking about poor Tad. He gets lost in the shuffle. But he's the last son of Abraham Lincoln. He is the, the son that Lincoln clings to during the Civil War. He is tied to a very important national tradition that I don't want to ruin by talking about now. But, um, and he is there at key moments, including pardoning of, of uh, soldiers, the Emancipation Proclamation, and the year a national holiday is established. All of that Tad Lincoln is not only privy to, but party to. And I'm going to tell that story next. It's about the importance of a child in a parent's life. So it's kind of an inverse turnabout tale, where the child is, it's not the parent who is needed in this story so much as the child was needed for the parent. So it's kind of cool. So that's next. But look, I, I hope to preserve these lives because there are wonderful lessons for us. I believe every one of these stories, history, is a roadmap for living. It teaches us how to live better and it warns us where not to go. And if you don't look at that history and at least recognize what went before, like Edison, you can't surpass what went before if you don't know what it was. And you can't learn what to avoid in the future if you don't know what was. So. I'm trying to keep these vibrant, fun, important characters in the public eye and hopefully in a lot of young hearts. So um, we're going to do uh, audience Q&A now. We just mm. ask that you raise your hands. We have microphones. We want to make sure that we capture your question for the cameras in the back. So if anyone has a question, raise your hand and we'll bring a microphone. There's a question over here. Yes, ma'am. Hi. I'm uh, Elaine McKern, and I have been uh, trying for the last 30 years to get good books into our schools. I was on the school board back in 94 to 98. Wow. This is my daughter, Heather. She's mm -hmm. Down syndrome. They isolated her. I fought for her mm. in the schools. They be included her then, and then they isolated her. And then I said, that's it. We're, I'm going to take her where she needs to go. But mm. I appreciate this book. She loves her Christmas book, oh. the, the Three Wise Men. She's got this one here already. Oh. We couldn't come and sit down here without her getting it. Oh, thank you. And thank you, Heather, right? Yes. Thank yes. you, Heather, for she coming. She was here when she was eight. She's now 38. Wow. And uh, I helped open this. So Well, thank so God she had a good mama who advocated for her and loves her enough to do so. God bless you. I mean, that is really... And I, I, you don't know, ma'am, the number of, Eileen? Ellen. Elaine. Close. Close. <laughs> um, Elaine, I, you don't know the number of mothers who come up to me and say, this is my story. They told me my child couldn't be taught, and he's now a professor at MIT. 
You know, it's the, because they don't know what to do with these crackling minds or people who perceive things differently. But the educational system today is just not built to accommodate, it, it's a one size fits all. We have to get out of that. Mm -hmm. Somehow we have to get out of it. But thank God for parents like you who are advocating and fighting for your child, which is what we all have to do. Yes, ma'am. Or sir. Sir. My question is this, you know, you've talked about Thomas Edison's mother and the impact she had on him. How did your mother, your own mother, mm. shape your life and your work? Great question. Mm -hmm. You're going to make me cry. Oh. <laughs> um, my, I dedicate this book to my mother and my wife because both of them, um, my wife advocated and is an incredible, has been the most incredible mother to our children. Um, and she, like my friend Carrie, who's here, and so many other mothers, they're with their children, and they're so close to those children, they know how they move and how they think and how they, they, they learn. And you have to, every one of my children learn differently. Three of them, three different modes of learning, three different schools. They didn't all go to one school, because they learn differently. And Rebecca taught me one child does not set the benchmark for the other, and, and nor should they. They're their own people. And our job is to allow those people to flourish and create whole people, intact people, and good citizens. That's what we're here to do. She did that beautifully. My wife, and she still does. We have a 17-year-old still in the house. Um, the others are finally loosed on the world. Good luck to you all. <laughs> um, in the case of my mother, Linda, who was such a, um, the same thing. My mother read to me constantly. I, I'll tell you the other thing, and I, we didn't get into this. I didn't even think about this till I was talking the other day. When I was in second grade, and this may be why this story stuck in my craw and I had to write it. Edison, remember, was thrown out of school in second grade. When I was in second grade, I had a nun. Her name was Sister Agnes. Sister Agnes and I had a little disagreement because as you, I, you're going to have trouble imagining this. When I was younger, I, I talked a lot. <laughs> What are you laughing about? What's so funny? <laughs> Nothing funny there. But I was, um, I was a little chatterbox. I'd finish my work because I, it was easy for me. So I'd finish the thing, close it. And I was turning and talking to Jennifer behind me. I remember her to this day. And all the kids around me and telling jokes and stuff. Nothing like I am today. Nothing at all. <laughs> and uh, this sister did not like the Raymond show at all. <laughs> and she would say, Mr. Arroyo, come here. And I came up, she put your hands on the table. I won't go into the whole story, but she pulled out the typical ruler. And it got ugly. Not for me, for her. And um, I'm not going to tell the story because I'm saving it for the one-man show. But I will just say, it ended spectacularly, and I was thrown out of her class. She would not let me back in the classroom. So they sent me to a fourth grade class where I finished out second grade. But that fourth grade teacher loved me and understood that I was kind of a wild kid. And <laughs> she let, gave me things to do. And I excelled. And I was doing fourth grade work and second grade work. It was fine. But my mother fought for me through all that period and defended me. And my grandmother, you know, I, I, I've always had these great, incredible women in my life. My grandmother, who took me to the theater when I was a kid, 
because my grandfather had a restaurant in New Orleans who would never go with her, couldn't go with her. So I got to see Yul Brenner and Carol Channing and Ethel Merman and Richard Burton and Rex Harrison in front of me in the third row as a 10 and 11 year old and Frank Sinatra and I mean I saw all these people and they shaped my life and changed my life. But she, but for her, none of that would have happened. So the power of a parent mm -hmm. who loves you, who understands you and loves you, is a very important thing. I was in Angola prison a few weeks ago with some friends who were working on a project. I wasn't sent there. I went <laughs> to do a project. And um, though some would like me to go to Angola prison and just you know, throw the key away. But uh, I went in and I met a guy on death row working in the welding shop. They gave him a few hours to work in the welding shop. And he passed his certification. He was so proud, big guy. Huge. And he, I said, how, tell me, how did you get the certification? He said, well, the warden's husband helped me. He gave me books and he helped me. And he was tough on me. And he said, I'm going to treat you like my son. Now, this is a big man, 35 years old, 38 years old, six foot four, huge guy, crying in the welding shop. And he said, it was the first time anybody loved me like a, a father or a mother. And he sat next to me when I took the certification exam. And he was like my angel there. And I had someone who loved me. And he treated me like his son. And I thought, my God, if this guy had had a father or a mother who cared, he probably wouldn't be here on death row. Mm -hmm. So the power of parents, it's all a reminder. And Nancy Edison, for me, just brings it full circle. And I hope others understand it, too. Important. My thanks to Melissa Giller, John Highbush, and all the folks at the Reagan Library for making us feel so at home, as well as all those who turned out. The Unexpected Light of Thomas Alva Edison, the first in the Turnabout Tales series, is available at bookstores everywhere and online. It makes a wonderful Easter gift, and in many ways, it is the story of a family resurrecting one of its members and speaks to the sacrifice sometimes necessary to do so. Uh, I also want to announce a little giveaway. I am going to be giving an entire school, a class, free copies of The Unexpected Light of Thomas Alva Edison, and I might, may even give away a few of these commemorative light bulbs, which are apparently going to be banned soon. Um, if you go to my social media sites, to Facebook and Twitter, I'm posting a link there. If you repost that, and answer in the replies why you think I should come to your school, you may be chosen as the site of my next visit. You can go to RaymondArroyo.com for all those details, and of course, check out my social media. And the book is available at the EWTN Religious Catalog and wherever books are sold. Since it is Holy Week, I wanted to bring you this classic interview with my dear friend, so missed, the beloved guest of the show, the late Father Richard John Newhouse. Back in 2000, Father had just published his important book, Death on a Friday Afternoon, Reflections on the Last Words of Jesus from the Cross. In it, he explores some of the most difficult questions surrounding Christian belief and the hope beyond suffering. His reflections are as relevant today as when this first aired. Here's that interview with the great Father Richard John Newhouse. Father, I want to talk to you today about death on a Friday afternoon. Mm. This is a peculiar project for Father Richard John Newhouse. You, you are normally 
writing theological books, books uh, looking at sociology or religion in general or the progress of the church, right. ecumenism. A devotional. Why a devotional now? Well, it's, it's a devotional theological book. The word theological might scare some people away, but it's an intellectually uh, intense and I mm -hmm. hope engaging reflection, meditation, mm -hmm. um, which um, came out of a couple of things, uh, Ray. For years and years, of course, I've been preaching on Good Fridays and right. sometimes the Treori, the three-hour uh, service right. on the seven last words. And, um, and I, that is what the book focuses on. The yes, seven on the last seven last words, words of, of Jesus from the cross. And uh, I did this uh, a few years ago for uh, uh, Monsignor Michael Wren at St. John the Evangelist Parish here in Manhattan. And a number of people afterwards were very kind and, and said, you know, that really should be written up and so mm -hmm. forth and so on. And so I was influenced by that. And then I'd have to say I was influenced also um, in ways that I still struggle to fully understand by the fact that I almost died in uh, 1993. Mm. In fact, the doctors at one point thought I was dead uh, oh. during a cancer uh, crisis. Did and you I've, know that? Oh, yeah, and I've written about this in, a, um, in another book that's coming out called The Eternal Pity from huh. Notre Dame Press. Uh, which is an anthology, really, of readings on death and dying, mm -hmm. <laughs> including an account of my own experience with mm. cancer and with what's called often a near-death experience. I call it a near-life experience. <laughs> but um, and, and so that entered into it. And, and um, it's, it is true. It is true that uh, most of my writing, and goodness knows I've written too many books and hundreds and hundreds of articles beyond numbering, um, then most of it has been a, a more straight theological, philosophical, mm -hmm. ethical, public policy oriented. Mm -hmm. that, uh, um, but this is a genre, this is a, uh, a type of writing that uh, I want to do more of because, quite frankly, uh, yeah, how was for, my the own experience? for my own spiritual good as well. Tell me what the experience was like because I know when you're writing I mean, you're writing the sort of things that I find myself writing, and you're piled down with research, and you have to call people and confirm facts. Yeah. In this, in this case, you, you are still citing, and we should mention, you cite hymns, you cite wonderful poets, uh, T.S. Eliot, playwrights, uh, to attempt to grasp and to, to uh, explain these inexplicable mysteries of, uh, of, of Christ and of his dying. In what way was this easier than writing uh, oh, no, journalism, this, this if you will? Oh, no, this is much, much harder. This is much, really? much harder. Really? Oh, yes, yes. In which way? Um, well, it's, it's, um, it's much slower because um, you're dealing with uh, the Word and the words of God uh, and trying to unfold, to unpack, if you will, to let let that word unfold itself and this requires a great deal of prayer and you have to, uh, you have to be it's a very solitary exercise uh, quite frankly it's um, an effort to let yourself be drawn into the events in this case the event of the crucifixion of Christ mm -hmm. and uh, death on a Friday afternoon uh, and you have to be drawn into it um, all the way, sometimes to a painful extent. 
before you can presume to come from that experience to draw things out of it for others. Mm -hmm. um, and, and quite frankly, it's a pastoral and a priestly and a spiritual mission upon which uh, a great deal more depends uh, in terms of the consequences for people's lives here and, dare I say, eternally than whether or not they agree with me on books I write about uh, the meaning of the uh, religion clause in the First Amendment, okay, <laughs> or uh, school choice. Or so this is a very personal book. Very, very personal, very priestly, I hope very pastoral. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it, certainly it changed me in the writing of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, in ways that I don't fully understand, hmm. but we're all on the way. Uh, and I uh, hope and rather expect that uh, for at least some readers, uh, it, it will be life-transforming, life-changing. Who do you intend to read this book? Who is your audience, ideally? Um, thoughtful Christians. I mean, it's not, it's not an easy uplift book. Uh, you know, but I must a, say, a, a we should also say, before people get too scared away, in the reading I've done of it, it is very accessible, but it is a thought-provoking and probing book, but I don't think it's uh, foreign or, or so lofty that people will, will you know, oh, no, no, should no, be scared no, of no, it. No, 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 I, 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 one doesn't have to have a PhD to, mm -hmm. to understand <laughs> this argument. I, I think any thoughtful Christian who's prepared to take the time and to think mm -hmm. prayerfully I mean, and, and to read something, uh, not just to get through the book, all right, right. And say, oh, well, I read that book, right. but to let yourself be drawn into to a way of thinking. I'll tell you, uh, um, I don't think most Christians, when you get right down to it, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, whatever, liberal, conservative, you name it, have a very clear understanding hmm. of why the crucifixion was necessary. Um, I mean, we have the formulas that we use. Jesus died for our sins, right. you know, right. or, or, and... But, but it's still Why was it necessary? Why couldn't God have forgiven sins without the horror of the death of God become a human being in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, why couldn't God have simply rewritten uh, in our favor the account of our lives in a way that would not have required the death of Christ? A, uh, I, I cite a, um, an old man who lived next to the uh, parish where I am and one morning, uh, some years ago, a few years ago, he, he came out and uh, caught me in the morning and he says, Father, I want to tell you something. <laughs> and I said, yeah, what's that? And he says, you know, I can, I can never be a Christian. And I said, well, why, why, why is that? He said, I can never believe in a God who killed his son. I'd never believe in a human being, and I could certainly never love a human father who killed his son. Why do you people ask me to believe and even to love a God who killed his son? 
I was very taken aback by that. It was a very, very straightforward uh, uh, objection. I mean, there's something uh, truly scandalous. That is, there's something fundamentally skewed and wrong with what was happening there on the cross. We have to say, this should not be happening. This is wrong. And it is wrong, but it is precisely through the wrongness of it that a new rightness is established. You say that the, the sacrifice is central to the biblical story. There can be no doubt. And perhaps yeah. we prefer to, as you said earlier, rush on to, to Easter. Rush on to or Easter, stay sure. stay in Palm Sunday. But the fact remains, yeah. many live on Calvary. We all live on Calvary in a very, very deep sense. That is to say, uh, in the sense that we are all to share mm -hmm. in the redemptive sufferings of Christ, as St. Paul says, but that we're all part of a creation that is still suffering. Again, Romans chapter 8, that, you know, the whole creation is in labor, uh, mm -hmm. yearning for what it is to be. And, and so the notes of Christian joy and resurrection victory, mm -hmm. okay, uh, must never drown out the reality of the cross. The cross remains the center, always the center. And the Christian joy is there to enable us to bear the cross with uh, not only patience and courage, but indeed with joy, knowing that the way of the cross, the way of death is the way of life. Uh, this is the, a deep, deep mystery. I'll tell you, I, I mentioned in the, in the, in the book, uh, Death on a Friday Afternoon, I was on a, a platform um, uh, with some years ago with, I, I won't name him, but a well-known California evangelist who built a huge, big church, which we'll call, say, um, New Life Cathedral. Okay. And we were both speaking at this conference. And he said at one point, he's, he's known for his upbeat, uh, positive thinking yes. and putting the uh, happiest spin on everything. <laughs> and he said at one point, he said, when we were building New Life Cathedral, the question arose, should there be a cross in New Life Cathedral? And some of the people said, well, no, because the cross is basically kind of, um, you know, a sorrowful. <laughs> it's a downer, you know. And he said, but no, I said, of course there will be a cross. We're a Christian church, and the cross is the chief symbol of Christianity. So there is a cross in New Life Cathedral. But I can tell you, there's nothing downbeat about the cross in New Life Cathedral. <laughs> <laughs> it's a happy cross. It's a smile, have a nice day cross. Uh, no. Rather interesting. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, boy. I think that... Um, <laughs> There is no such thing as a happy cross, is no, there? there? No, but there is, uh, peculiarly enough, there is, again, as we say in the Easter Vigil, there is the Felix Culpa, there is mm -hmm. the happy fault. Mm -hmm. I mean, you realize what, what an astonishing thing that is we sing during the Easter yeah. Vigil. Oh, happy fault that earned for us such a great Redeemer. Mm. That we can even look back at the, not only Adam's sin, mm -hmm. but the sin of all of humanity multiplied a thousand times over. And but that's only on the back end, once we realize what's happened. But when you're in the midst of it, 
when you're in the midst of it, this is unspeakably horrible. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's uh, unmitigated darkness. It's night without end. Okay? Abandonment, you call Abandonment. it. Abandonment. It's dereliction. It's the, the derelict on the cross. Okay? Mm -hmm. They totally abandon Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and we have to, to remember that this is not a drama being enacted here. This is for Christians. We have a, uh, they say, well, okay, we go through Good Friday. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we know that in a couple of days it's going to be Easter, okay? Mm -hmm. So there's almost a kind of a let pretend, uh, let's pretend character right. to it. But it's not. It cannot be for us just as it was not for Jesus. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when our Lord prays, let this cup pass from me and sweats, uh, sweat like great drops of blood, he's not pretending, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, it's not as though, you know, well, I have to just go through this until we get to, to resurrection. And your book is demanding that people stay in that present moment, in each present moment of the Passion. And not, not simply as a, a Lenten exercise or as a Holy Week devotional mm -hmm. exercise, but to see how our whole lives are uh, only uh, filled with hope and, and promise if we every day, live in the consciousness of everything that seems to be in defiance of hope yeah. and of promise. Yeah. Only if we live in, in the keen awareness of the darkness uh, can we understand uh, the light. Uh, uh, the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead had a marvelous expression. He says, the only simplicity to be trusted is the simplicity on the far side of complexity. Yeah. And so I paraphrase that that the only hope to be trusted is the hope that is on the far side of despair. The only life to be trusted is the life that is on the far side of death, which is to say the life of Christ. Two final questions. The first, why, uh, why did you call it death on a Friday afternoon, and why did you restrict yourself to meditations on the last words of Jesus? Why not expand it a bit more? Well, maybe I'll write another book. Oh, I see. You're, <laughs> you're, you're preparing the way for a sequel then. <laughs> no, you can only do so much in one book. Sure. But, uh, no, the title, Death on a Friday Afternoon, uh, gets us back again to the, the specificity, uh -huh. the specificity of the Christian story. Christianity is not a bunch of principles or abstract truths or, or I mean, it involves all that. Mm -hmm. But finally, Christianity is a story about what God did in Jesus Christ, which is the story of the world. If it is, tr uh, if it is a true story, it is, the, it is true for everybody. It is the story of the world. So that to say on a particular Friday afternoon, at a particular place, at a particular time, see, we have uh, uh, Harold Bloom, the Yale mm -hmm. and NYU mm -hmm. uh, literary uh, critic has written a book on the American religion and he says that um, Americans are basically Gnostics. They think they're Christians. They think they're biblical Christians or Jews, but they really are Gnostics. And what does he mean by that? He, he's on to something. Is that a great deal of Christian piety and thought is Gnostic in the sense that the, the what did the early Gnostics believe? The early Gnostics believed that um, with your raised consciousness you were immediately a spark of the divine <laughs> in communion with the divine. You know, God and, and you me in this uh, uh, elevated sense that rises above 
the specificity and the nastiness and the complexities of history. Mm -hmm. And so in the Gnostic view, and, and there were early Gnostics in the, in the Christian church who said that Jesus didn't die on the cross, mm -hmm. that in fact Jesus only left his physical form on the cross and that Jesus was in the heavens observing the foolishness of these people who thought he had died on the cross. Uh, so this Gnostic evasion of the messiness and the reasons for discouragement and despair within actual day-by-day, hour-and-hour lived human existence is what this book tries to counter, and it tries to say, no, look, here on this Friday afternoon, and we are there. We were there. You know, the old uh, spiritual, were you there when, when they crucified my Lord? We were there when we crucified our Lord. We were there when we cried, crucify him, crucify him. And when we drove the nails, and when we put in the spear, uh, you know, and to understand that what happened then, that story is the story of our own lives. And that death is our own death, now conquered into the life of Christ eternal for him and for us. On this Good Friday, in this Jubilee year 2000, what, how, in what way does this book help the modern-day Catholic reconnect to that central mystery of the faith? I would hope, I would hope that in the same way the Holy Father's pilgrimage to the Holy Land helps us to connect with um, the fact that everything has been faced that needs to be faced in order to live confidently and trustingly and lovingly. That in Jesus Christ, in God's revelation in Jesus Christ, the worst that could possibly happen has already happened in the death of Christ, when the darkness overcame the light. And so that when Christians say, this is what I, this is not only for this book, but God willing, maybe for my life's ministry, if one could communicate this, and if I could more fully understand it and live it, that when, for example, Julian of Norwich says, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well, that this is not optimism, this is not sentimentality. This is not some kind of idealistic dream. This is the simplicity that is on the far side of complexity. This is the life that is on the far side of death. But we have to always, and I hope this book helps people to do that, it has helped me to do it somewhat more than I could before, to always hold together simultaneously in one thought Death and life, crucifixion and resurrection. Death on a Friday afternoon, meditations on the last words of Jesus from the cross by the late Father Richard John Newhouse, I read it every year, is available at bookstores everywhere and online. That's all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. Have a blessed Holy Week, a very happy Easter. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.